say to the visitors here that I'm pretty much a visitor myself. So this is my fourth time here. So um, if I greet you and you come here regularly and I, I think you're a visitor, I'm sorry. I, I just don't know who you are. So, so we'll forgive each other. If you turn your Bibles uh, to Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> Speaking of Father's Day. Some of you might remember from the old days, uh, a slugger named Ralph Kiner played for the Pirates mainly. And uh, he, uh, you don't even know, know what I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, he was one of the great home run hitters for a period of about se- seven years or so. And after he retired, he became Mets broadcaster. And he was a very good Broadcast. He really could tell things from a player's standpoint, but he was known for making boo-boos all the time and things he was saying. And so on one Father's Day, as the broadcast came on, it was he said, as we come on today, welcome to the game, the Mets game. And he said, and I want to wish all you fathers a happy birthday. <laughs> so to you fathers, happy birthday. Okay, we have, we're in Romans 12, and Romans 12... It follows all that doctrinal information uh, about uh, oh God has saved us by his grace when we were going astray. He saved us by his mercy. And so God has something for us to do now. Those of us who believe in Jesus by his grace, he's got something for us to do. And these verses three through eight especially relate to how we should interact within the body of Christ. And so. Let me read that. I want to start with verse 2, though, so we can get a flow. And I'll read verses 2 through 8. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Now, Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you will speak to us through it, that uh, we will receive it uh, reverently, remembering, uh, Lord, that you are still a consuming fire. So help us to come to it with recognizing that in Jesus Christ that we we come to you one who is father but one whose ways and whose attributes never change and so you are holy help us to have a, a reverent attitude toward you as we look at these things uh, help us to uh, receive them as from you in Jesus name amen, amen. Um, the late dr. Lloyd Jones who was a physician uh, in Wales and then later in London, he became a pastor. He left the medical profession and he became a pastor. He lived from 1899 to 1981. Uh, 
But he tells a story that when he was in medical school at St. Bartholomew's in London, that there was a, a student, a fellow student that he had who was brilliant, and he was able to ace the test and all that kind of thing. But he said as far as his practice goes, he was practically useless. And he gives an example. He said he, he could put on a stethoscope and put it on someone's chest with great flair, but he didn't know what he was doing. He, he couldn't read. what He didn't understand what he was hearing. And so he said he really was not a good doctor. And we know people like that. They can do the academics. I'm sure uh, people can tell you that have gone through law school or as engineers, indeed, who have gone through seminary. Uh, they can be the best academic students, but when it comes to applying what they know, they can't do it. They're, they're, they really, practically speaking, um, they just don't have it. Paul does not want us to be in that condition. In other words, we've just gone through these 11 chapters. We didn't do that here, but Paul has just taught all that he's taught in these 11 chapters. And you can have your head full of theology and yet be relatively useless in the church. You can't apply anything. Now, there are certain Christians who are very good at being practical and others not so practical. But Paul would have us, by the Holy Spirit, to be those kinds of people who take the doctrine and are able to apply it in a skillful way. So what he's talking about in these eight verses has to do with our interaction mainly within the the Christian community. And one of the big points he's making here is that when we examine ourselves as far as our place in the local body, we should do it with sober judgment. We should be realistic about who we are. Um, That's one of the big points that he's making here. So when a Christian is being transformed by the Holy Spirit, one thing that will come out is that he will have a lowliness of mind, not a, not a make-believe, fake, oh, I'm just a worm type of attitude, but he will have a true lowliness of mind. Um, so you'll notice there that verse th- uh, 3 is connected to the, what comes before it by A4. So he's connecting what he just said about becoming living sacrifices, about how we should... Uh, act within the body of Christ, and what our real true spiritual worship and service is to God. And part of that is how we function in the body of Christ. So the first thing that he brings out here uh, is that as Christians, as people redeemed, and as people who are supposed to understand how God has saved us by his grace and mercy, we should rid ourselves of all sense of self-importance, of uh, a conceited, egotistical Mr. Big Stuff attitude. Uh, Let me give you a paraphrase of of this by a a British pastor. He said, you will be tempted to think too much of yourself. Resist the temptation and instead seek to come to a sober, realistic and balanced assessment of your gifts. In precisely what ways has God equipped you to be of benefit uh, to the body of Christ? Because we are naturally self-centered and we... uh, As being self-centered, we uh, oftentimes have a a too big of opinion of ourselves. It's a common tendency in the local church. Uh, And sometimes it doesn't have to be just in the leadership. It does occur in leadership. But there'll be people in the church who especially show this overinflated view of themselves. Now, the text here has a play on words. The same root word is used four times in verse 3. You've got high-minded, minded, minded, sober-minded. So 
how Paul put this in the original, we can bring it out nicely in the English by using words like that. Let me give you a couple of literal translations of that from other people. Jay Adams translated it like this. Not to be high-minded above that which he ought to be minded, but to be so minded as to be sober-minded. Or Douglas Moo. That you not think beyond what is necessary to think, but that you think with sober thinking. And that really brings up the idea. So the warning is, is that we're prone to have a faulty self-evaluation. Uh, we can be literally hyper-minded and have too great of an estimate of our importance in the church. So this is a call to a sensible appraisal of self. And, of course, part of that's going, going to happen by other people interacting with us in the church and, and telling us what we're like what they, or what they think our gifts are, which, by the way, means that uh, as those on the other side, we don't want to be flattering people and telling them they're good at this, great at that, when they're not. That doesn't help anybody. We're to be honest with one another in a loving way. So there's this, there's this tendency to pridefulness. And uh, dealing with this issue is not an easy thing. You know, Scripture always speaks negatively about high-mindedness. It never praises it. Now, that's not true in our culture. Our culture praises pride and egotism. And it, in sports especially, you see it. You know, today, I mean, if, if ball players did back in, let's just say, the 70s or the 60s, what ball players do today when they hit home runs, for example, flipping their bats and trotting around the bases and showing off, getting to home plate, pointing at the sky. The next time they were at bat, they would have had a baseball beside the head because that kind of stuff wasn't put up with today in football. Every play, every tackle, they strut around and, you know, it's our culture. That's the way it's supposed to be, but it's not supposed to be that way. In the church, it's not to be that way. This high-mindedness, this strutting, it's, it's not to be praised. The Bible's full of statements like this. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, in the perverted speech, I hate. That's what God says. Proverbs 16.5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 6. 16 and part of 17. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven things that are an abomination to him. First one, haughty eyes, which means arrogance, has the idea of, of arrogance. Again, just to give you a quick sports one again, I remember one time Pete Rose was being interviewed, and he said, you show me a man who's not proud, and I'll show you a loser. It's not true, biblically speaking. It's a failure to recognize that if you're good at something, then God gave it to you. You don't have to pretend you're not good at something, but you give God the glory and the credit. So in the church, elitism is out of bounds. Again, now, what Paul is saying here when he talks about having this sober-mindedness, he's not saying this. He's not saying that you pretend uh, that you don't have any abilities, that you are of no value in the church, um, it, but what he is saying, you don't imagine that those gifts that you do have make you superior to other people or make you better than other people. You don't look down on others. You don't boast about your abilities. In 1 Corinthians, the first four chapters especially are dealing with this problem in the church of people were being schismatic. And so people in the congregation, there'd be a group of them that had this guy as their favorite teacher and another one had this guy as their favorite teacher and it went on and on like that. And they were glorying. It was that it was that celebrity culture type of thing that they were doing. And the Apostle Paul says this to them. 
He says, who makes you different from anyone else? He doesn't answer that, but that's obvious. Who makes you different from anyone else? Then he goes to the next question. What do you have that you did not receive? I, I don't have anything. You don't either. You don't have anything that you didn't receive from God. And so then he nails it. He says, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And that's a common thing in the church. We forget. Uh, we act like uh, we're not creatures. We made ourselves and that um, God had nothing to do with it. There was a day when uh, John the Baptist was out in the wilderness and his disciples came to him with some of the Jewish leaders. And they said this to him. Look, he... Jesus is baptizing and all are going to him. What did John say? John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. See? And then just a few minutes later after that, he says, he says, he must increase. I must decrease. John is saying what I have in the place I have in the kingdom of God is completely due to God in his grace. I am what I am, no more, no less. So we need to repent of any sense of self-importance. It's, a, it's displeasing to God. It's an, it's a, an abomination to God. You know, I, I assume that you, you pick it up in others when they're being that way, and you don't like it. You hate it. You hate it when someone's being arrogant. You know, do you remember that character on, on, the, on the show MASH, uh, Charles Emerson Winchester III? He was the epitome of that kind of thing. He was, he was from Boston, and he put everybody else down. No one was as good as him. We hate seeing that in other people. We need to learn to hate it in ourselves. There's a man in the, the third letter of John named Diotrephes. And this is what the text says about him. He likes to put himself first, or as another translation puts it, he loves to be first among them. King James says he loveth the preeminence. Um, he was the church boss. You know, he didn't care about the eldership. He was the church boss. Maybe he started that church. It was his church and he was going to run it. And he likes to put himself first and he wouldn't put up with any rivals. In fact, John tells us as he writes to that church that he wouldn't let John come. He said he would. He doesn't welcome us. Imagine that if, if, it were, if it were possible, you say today the Apostle John will be speaking here and the elder stood up and said he's not coming in here because, you know, he'll get the limelight and will be not so great. The Bible says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition there may have the idea of a spirit of rivalry. I do what I do because I'm really competing and I want to be better than somebody else. Or it may have, it's also used this way, it may have the idea of don't be mercenary. You've got a, an ulterior motive for what you do, um, whatever that may be. And that he also says don't do it from conceit, which is the word vainglory, the opposite of doing it for the glory of God. Don't be high-minded. Now, you might be saying, well, you know what? I, I, I see this as a problem in other people, but I don't need the warning. So I'm kind of just putting it on cruise control right now. But did you notice what the Apostle Paul says here in verse three? He says, I'm saying this to everyone who is among you. Every one of us wants to be a God in our hearts. Have you ever had someone say something in front of you about somebody else? 
who does the same thing that you do, but they're praising them for their ability to do it. And do you ever have a feeling of jealousy? It's like, you know, I mean, look, as a pastor, I pastored the same church for 35 years. People would sometimes, like during the COVID thing, had people say, oh, because they, they shut us down. We didn't go to church from the end of April to the beginning of June, I remember. And uh, people would say to me, oh, I've been watching Alistair Begg live on TV, and he's so good. You know what? I would feel in my heart something rising up that I thought that I had put down. And there it was. It's like, I mean, I, I love Alistair Begg. You know, I mean, I'm glad they didn't say some heretic. They said someone really good. But still, I felt in my heart, I, I began to feel like, well, what about me? You know, type of thing. So we all this warning is for all of us. We to everyone who is among you. No one is immune from this sin. And you know that if you're honest with yourself, how quickly you can become jealous and envious of somebody else. Don't underestimate your ability to overestimate yourself. Let me put a few questions to you. These aren't profound at all, but they might help you to think through this idea of being high minded as opposed to being sober-minded. Do you see yourself as a servant to your fellow believers here? That, they're, that you are to wait on them? Uh, do you crave the limelight? Are you easily insulted when your importance hasn't been recognized? Maybe you had some project at the church and you were really an important part of it, but when they had the awards banquet, they forgot about you. I'm going to another church. Uh, do you angle to get applause for what you do? Do you think everybody else is kind of dumb when they talk and you think, ah, I've got the real inside scoop on this stuff? Do you get easily bored when other people are giving their opinions, even when you have got a good idea that they're not right, but you don't give them time? Um, are you hypercritical about the service of other people? Not very good at that. I could have done that better. Uh, do you get hot under the collar when someone's opinion is contrary to your to you to you to yours, and you and they say, maybe say something like to, like this to you? Like maybe you're in a fellowship group, or it could be any kind of meeting, and you give your opinion on something, and they say, you know what? I, I think you're wrong. I know my own nature. As soon as I hear that, it's like, mm, how do you say that to me? Just be honest. Do you feel slighted when others don't praise you and clap for you loudly? Now, this next question, it may be true, but do you let it control you? Do you think that you're undervalued by the rest of the people in the church? Maybe you are. I don't know. But do you live on that? They don't value me for who I am, what I do here. No one ever thanks me. That's a form of being high-minded, not being sober-minded. High-mindedness, if you have it and you practice it, it's going to cause problems in the church. It always does. It causes trouble. By pride comes nothing but strife. Proverbs 13:10. Or this, cast out the scoffer and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. Or again, Proverbs 28, 25. He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife. The know-it-all big ego person does not make for peace. He tends to light fires. 
James 3.16 says, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. And by the way, high-mindedness will ruin you. You know, the Bible gives us a lot of incentive for living for Christ. And the big one is always for the glory of God and out of love for him. But the Bible gives us all these, if I can call them, sub-incentives. And one of them is your own well-being. That's why Jesus gives warnings about hell. He doesn't do that for no reason. He's, he's assuming that we have a proper uh, self-concern. I don't want to spend eternity in hell, so I'll listen to his warnings. Well, it's like these, these other incentives are given here. The Bible says pride will ruin you. It will wreck your life. When pride comes, then comes shame. Proverbs 16, 18, a proverb that seems like all Christians quote wrong all the time. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18:12. before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty and before honor is humility. One more. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain or obtain honor. That's an unchanging, rigid, exceedingly persistent law of God. Pride will bring you down. It always does. Don't be high minded. Okay, so first of all, let's be aware of this sin in our own hearts, in the body of Christ, this tendency to be high minded. Paul says, don't do that. Okay, next point. Every Christian needs to assess his own giftedness and his place in a matter-of-fact way. And this is how the text puts it. But to think soberly, or as the ESV has it, but to think with sober judgment, or literally, be minded with sober-mindedness. Now, it it ought to help us as believers to be sober-minded just in a general way, this way. Remember your roots. Remember your Adamic roots. You were a child of wrath. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Remember, remember your roots. As one brother said, if, if God hadn't loved us and reached out to us, we never would have reached out to him. So remember that too. God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved. So that ought to help right there not to be high-minded. I deserve to be in hell this morning. You do too. I don't deserve anything good from God. But God constantly pours out good things upon us. It's by his mercy that he saved us. When you do, after you do that, then soberly assess yourself in your place in the body of Christ. Not high-mindedness, but sober-mindedness. Look how Paul even prefaces this in verse 3. He says... For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. So he's going to say, he says, I'm an apostle by God's grace. Obviously, that takes in the fact that he was saved by grace. But he says, what I'm saying to you is by the grace of God. I'm not usurping any position. I've been called to be an apostle. And Paul recognizes constantly what he was and that God saved him by mercy. But he says, you know what? Grace is telling me that I am now as an apostle to tell you how to live before God. Paul is very keen on that, on what he is innately. For example, he says to the Corinthians, dealing with that same problem of schism, he says, who then is Paul and who is Apollos but servants through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, 
Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, that's all I'm going to read of that. He's not saying that we're absolutely nothing because he goes on in the eighth verse, says each one's going to receive his proper reward. But he says, God didn't need us. I planted, Paulus watered, or the other way around. But God was the one who was giving the increase. In another place, he says this. This will help you, by the way, when someone comes to you and say, you know, I really appreciate, you know, your ministry, what you did, and that sort of thing. Uh, You don't want to be like the person who's overly spiritual and says, when you say that to them, they come back and they say to you, oh, it wasn't me, it was all of God. You know the comeback to that, don't you? Well, it wasn't that good, right? (laughs) But listen to how Paul responds. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Now, here's Paul being sober-minded. He's not being high-minded here. He's being sober-minded. Listen to what he says. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, he says, but the grace of God which was with me. That's a most excellent way for a Christian to think. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I mean, for example, I've got a friend that I went to seminary with, and we were talking about it on the way down here this morning. I mean, he has got more ability than I can imagine. The things that he has, God has done through him, it just goes on and on and on. His mind never stops working, and he never seems to run out of energy. I couldn't even start to do what he had done. But I know him, and I know he'd be the first to say, it's by the grace of God I am what I am. I haven't... God's grace to me wasn't in vain. I've worked hard, but not I. But the grace of God was with me. Some people have a greater capacity of work to work. Others don't. You know, you just shouldn't feel bad about that. That's not to promote laziness. But think soberly. Don't overvalue yourself. Don't undervalue yourself. I think that's important to bring that out. John Murray says, in talking about those two extremes, he says, if we consider ourselves to possess gifts we do not have, Then we have an inflated notion of our place and function. We sin by esteeming ourselves beyond what we are. Back in my younger days, I loved Jim Croce. I don't know if any of you ever heard of him or not. He he lived from uh, 43 to 73. He was killed in a plane crash when I was just entering my senior year in high school. And I, I loved his lyrics. He wrote most of what he sang. And he had a song called Working at the Car Wash Blues. You might know that song. And in that song, the whole song, what it's about is he had just gotten out of prison serving 90 days, he says, for non-support. That's, what, that's, that's the context. And he got a job working at a car wash. And he's, the song goes on about he's always in soggy old shoes and all this stuff. But the whole point of the song is I'm better than this. I deserve something better than this. So he talks about I should be in an office sitting in a swivel chair and all this stuff. But then he's got this line in here. He said, you might not believe that it's true, but sitting at this end of Niagara Falls is an undiscovered Howard Hughes. Overinflated view of himself. Who's Howard Hughes? Look it up. You'll find out later. At one time, at one time in this country, he was probably the most wealthy person in the country and had his fingers in everything. Um, But anyway. That's what that's the idea of being no one was going to be a Howard Hughes, but he thought he should be. Don't overvalue yourself. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. 
But listen to Murray on the other side of it. If we underestimate, then we are refusing to acknowledge God's grace. And we fail to exercise that which God has dispensed for our own sanctification and that for others. Nothing virtuous about a false humility. So the, this passage isn't saying, okay, put yourself down all the time, mindlessly put yourself down. But it is saying, think soberly about yourself. Another writer put it like this, to think too much or too little of the grace of God within is one of the most difficult of all duties. Isn't that the truth? So you hear this this morning. Well, how do I know that I'm not overvaluing myself? How do I know that I'm undervaluing? It's a very fine line. Not claiming this is easy. But one thing that helps tremendously is stay in the word and stay active in the body of Christ. And people will, will tell you what you are and where you're coming from. Okay, a third thing. We need to recognize and accept that the gifts and the place that God gives us uh, in the body of Christ are from him. But to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith, or as God has measured out a measure of the faith, or as the ESV put it, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I'm going to tip my cards open so you can see where I'm coming from and what this means. Each when he says, has, as God has given each a measure of faith, I think he's saying God has portioned out a portion of the faith to each believer, to, that is, to you. So I don't think he's using faith here to, in the sense of some people have a much greater capacity to believe than others. By the way, if you look at the commentaries on this, page after page after page is written trying to interpret this phrase. So I'm going to boil it down to what I think he's saying, and I'm not alone. I'm not making one up. But it's, it's not easy, what he's saying here. But I think what he's saying is this. Faith is likely used here in the sense of the particular gifts that you have in the body. So you could almost put the faith like he does in verse 6. Know your place in the faith, in the body of Christ. I think that's what he's saying. And he's saying there's great diversity. I, I'm not denying he's saying that it takes faith in God's power and trust in his, in his power to exercise the gift but I think he's mainly talking about uh, the same kind of thing he talks about in Ephesians 4, 7, where he says to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So just to sidetrack for a second, that means, for example, among your elders, there will be different gifts among the elders, those who have the ability to lead. There'll be leaders and there'll be leaders that are better at leading in another way. There are teachers. There are teachers and there are teachers. Some teachers are much better more gifted than other teachers, but it doesn't mean the other one doesn't have the gift. Uh, John Murray put it like this. There are, therefore, distinct endowments variously distributed among the members of the Christian community. And this is spoken of here as dealing to each a measure of faith. Well, the old Puritan, Matthew Poole, God deals to every man his measure or portion not all gifts to one, nor the same gift to everyone in the same measure or proportion. I mentioned Alistair Begg. That's why he's in Ohio this morning and I'm here. Okay? I got an idea. If you announced that Alistair Begg was preaching here today, that you wouldn't be able to fit everybody in. There's a reason. He's more gifted. So we're to assess ourselves with a sober mind. How has God gifted me? How has he endowed me? 
What are my gifts? Where am I useful? Where do I see God using me? What does the rest of the body of Christ think? What do the elders say to me when I meet with the elders and I say, where can I fit in here? What am I good at doing? By the way, there have been a lot of books written, especially in the 70s. There were books written on how to discover your spiritual gift. Do you know the Bible doesn't tell us how to do that? Now, I'm not against those books, per se. They may have some very helpful things, like they, some people take temperament tests and all this stuff. But the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. You know what the Bible says to do? Serve. And you know what? If you serve, it will emerge. Uh, an example of that is, I, I alluded to Dr. Lloyd-Jones, great preacher. Well, it, it was becoming popular for a while, and, and maybe you do it here sometimes, I don't know, to have a little children's sermon before the sermon for the big people. And so they decided they would try that. And so Dr. Lloyd-Jones had the children come up front. And after he did it, his wife said, don't you ever do that again. <laughs> he was terrible at it. And he said he was. Um, Stuart Olyot, English pastor, he says, in other words, Paul is telling each of his readers to find out what he is good at. He is to ask himself, in what way can he benefit the fellowship, which is the body of his savior? Let me read Grudem on this just for a second about finding your gift, where you fit in. Grudem says, Paul seems to assume that believers will know what their spiritual gifts are. He simply tells those in the church at Rome to use their gifts in various ways. In the same manner, Peter tells his readers how to use their gifts, but he does not say anything about discovering what they are. Quote, 1 Peter 4.10, As each has received a gift, use it for one another as good stewards of God's various grace, varied grace. So serve where you're asked to serve. Try things out. Serve where you're needed. You'll find out that, well, I don't belong in there. That's not for me. And, you know, by the way, and I, and I hope the elders don't get mad at me for saying this, but, you know, every ministry that you have or that you end up carrying out, it may not necessarily be that your name's on a roster in the church that you're doing. Now, I think that you should give the local church and what the church is trying to do Priority, But, for example, there was a lady in our church down in Poland, just comes to church with her husband every week and just seems she's friendly. She sits here, she talks to people and all that, but she does not. she's not on any roster or anything like that. But what people don't know is she's got a nursing home ministry. She's got a whole slew of ladies that she visits on a regular basis and ministers to them. But it's not on any roster in our church down there. But she's serving. She's using her gifts. So it may not be known. So I say serve where you can and you'll find your place uh, and you'll know what your particular endowments are. And you have to accept what God has given you. You may not be up front, so to speak. And so what that tells us as Christians is this. We don't want to gloat over our own gifts, but we don't want to envy others either because it's all given from God. That's the point of this. First Corinthians twelve eleven. One and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So we should rejoice in the gifts that God has given to people. Someone has said being sober minded means recognizing what God has given us and being zealous in use of it as well as humble. Well, I'm running out of time. Surprise, surprise. Happens every week, doesn't it? So I'm going to just leave my last point right now and I'm going to go right to the conclusion ultimately in this whole idea of being a servant Christ is our great exemplar sometimes people get a little bit nervous about 
calling Christ our example because, after all, he's the redeemer. Lots of churches, churches that don't really believe the Bible or the gospel, talk about Christ our example. And it's all works. It's all um, just morals and ethics and that sort of thing. And they look at Christ where they like him. When they don't like him, they don't follow him. But, but, um, but Christ is our exemplar. We're told to follow his steps. And one thing he's our exemplar at is being a servant. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's a great way to come to church on Sundays. It doesn't mean that you don't come to church hurting at times and you need to be ministered to. We all need to be ministered to every week. But I still should come even when I'm hurting. And every preacher can tell you this. He's come to the pulpit many Sundays in his church with his heart breaking over certain things. But he can't say, well, I can't preach today because I'm too upset. He has to preach. But we come, we say, Lord, I come today as a servant. Someone there may need me. I think a great uh, practice to, to get used to is something Francis Schaeffer said he used to do. No matter where he was, no matter what crowd he was in, when someone was talking, when he was talking with someone, he wasn't looking over their shoulder, seeing where he was going to go next. He was with that person. Now, I know people can dominate your time. You have to say at times, uh, it's now three o'clock in the afternoon. I need to go home to lunch. You know, I had that kind of thing happen to me. But um, be with the person that you're with. Come with a servant mentality. I'm coming to serve today. I'll close with this before communion. Is it all right to quote John Wesley in this church? <laughs> you probably sing his brother's song. So, well, this, this is a famous saying by John Wesley. Here it is. Think of this as you think about being sober-minded with your gifts. Do all the good you can in all the ways you can to all the souls you can in every place you can at all times, at all the times you can with all the zeal you can as long ever as long as ever you can amen let's pray lord we recognize this morning that we have a place in your body by your grace you've saved us you saved us from destruction and not only that but now you want to use us to build your kingdom you've given all of us at least one gift and many you give many gifts Help us to think soberly about ourselves and not to be high-minded. May we be uh, helpful to one another to honestly say to one another, this is where I think you really serve well. You, you help here. Uh, I see God blessing you here. Uh, Lord, help us to be willing to uh, be told where we're not good at things and to praise you and to be thankful to others for the great gifts that you've given to them, even when they outshine us. And put us in the background, as it were. Lord, we know that it's the same spirit that's working in all to accomplish the big plan that you have in this world. So, Lord, we thank you that you've saved us and we thank you that you've given us a place to serve you, the King of Kings. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.